Hello, everyone. Welcome to JCB Art Studio, Season 5. My name is Joanna, and I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. I was having a bit of a panic attack before we uh, started recording because it seems like our local municipality decided to dump dump trucks up topsoil, the park across the street. The neighbor decided this was the time he was going to do the little puncture. You know, I don't know what that's called, where they aerate the lawn. So I had this motor going next to the studio and I thought, please, guys, please, please. <laughs> it's quiet. So that's good. All right. Today, I have science fiction author, and I think he's he's more than that, just thinking about his, his novels, Mark Everglade. And when I say more than that, it's because I don't believe he is confined or conf oh, I haven't had enough. I don't believe you're tied down to just one genre. Okay. So, but we're going to find out about Mark. So, like I said, Mark Everglade. He spent his life studying social conflict. He runs the website markeverglade.com, where he reviews cyberpunk media and interviews other great authors. He runs Cyberpunk Day, and I want to find out what day of the year that is. So he runs Cyberpunk Day each year, which is dedicated to bringing dystopian fiction to a new generation. His short stories have been featured beside legendary authors like Cory Doctorow, Walter John Williams, and Dr. Rudy Rucker. Today, we're going to talk about his latest novel, Inertia, which is it's really cool. <laughs> Mark, welcome. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Joanna. It's great to be here. Oh, good, good. So can you explain cyberpunk? themed science fiction novels and is there a specific day which is cyberpunk day absolutely so cyberpunk when we think of science fiction there's a lot of uh, different genres of science fiction um subgenres such as space opera for instance that's what a lot of people think of when they think of science fiction is space spaceships aliens other planets uh star wars star trek and this big epic scale space opera and then you have um, a variety of genres until we get down to dystopian. Yeah. And then within dystopia, you find a subgenre, cyberpunk. So cyberpunk is essentially looking at our relationship to technology. And it takes place in the near future as opposed to uh, 10,000 years in the future. My books take place a little bit farther in the future, but the technology is more similar to today. Um, and Cyberpunk tends to be very grounded uh, in, the, in actual events, actual social conflicts, and actual social problems of today uh, versus some of the more hypothetical uh, situations that an advanced civilization uh, might um, entail. And so in cyberpunk literature, there may be space and aliens, but it's not the focus. The focus is usually on um, urban environments, and it's usually a group of dedicated people who are trying to change either a corrupt totalitarian government or um, uh, corporations which are profiting at the people's expense. Yeah. And so this is very different than the, the idea that you have an alien race out there which is attacking. And, you know, it's a very grounded, uh, kind of socially relevant and socially conscious science fiction. That's cool. I like that. I like that because I like reading science fiction where I can draw parallels to current sure. times. 
right? Absolutely. Yeah. So is, is there an actual Cyberpunk Day? So Cyberpunk Day is usually on October 10th every year. Um, 1010 uh, is like 1010. It's binary code. And so it's just a clever thing that everyone came up with. It was founded by Matthew Goodwin. And then I assist um, assist it with the process throughout and with uh, running it, setting up events each year with a small group that's dedicated to this, Elias Hurst, Emmanuel, and others. And so uh, basically, uh, we get together um, indie developers and some big published names in uh, video games, in uh, books, in music, um, famous, uh, whether it's a famous synthesizer player um, who's um, doing um, soundtracks or whether it's um, famous voice actors for um, different people in cartoons or video games uh, in the genre. And then we get together a lot of authors and we put together all these works and we bundle the bundle them together and um, basically create discussions in the community surrounding this whole literature. Uh, so we might watch um, Robocop or Blade Runner together as a group. You know, we might uh, watch Total Recall as a group. We've done that uh, one year and just open open the forum so that everybody in the community can you know discuss it. And in lots of cases, the uh, individuals get to discuss these works of uh, cyberpunk art with the media creators. Uh, who will either interview or will have an open forum so that they can connect with them. Cool. So when you said that um, having conversations with creators, it almost makes me think of, but it's not, it almost makes me think of Comic Con where yes. people get, it's that getting together, let's say, of fans, exactly. of readers. Uh, cool. Exactly. <laughs> um, and it is on a smaller level because it's virtual. But as yeah. we've expanded, we've wanted to increase our um, you know, personnel power. So eventually we can do more in-person events. Yeah, but. that would be cool. Okay. I'm glad I asked that. Sometimes I think, yeah. oh, this is such a basic question, but I'm always surprised. Cool. Okay. Right. I appreciate it. Okay. So would you say the theme or more, I say, dark-rooted uh, conflict or battle in inertia is man fighting these big regimes who just there you, you had mentioned it earlier who want to profit off of humanity yes i mean in inertia um my latest cyberpunk novel uh, basically you have a young woman ash who is a researcher and studies um geology and she notices some irregular readings and whatnot um, in the geological records and basically uncovers a problem with uh, global warming and rising sea levels in the planet's rotation. And uh, these and all this comes together. And um, over time, she gains too much information and ends up over her head and basically um, ends up with classified information that suggests that a corporation, Geostorm, is actually uh, working with an old scion of the government, kind of the old guard of the government, um, in order to uh, basically profit off of all this destruction and try to return the planet to an earlier state. Kind of a very conservative group that's trying to maintain the status quo and whatnot. And so um, she has to rely on one person uh, for help, and that's Severum, her father. Um, in order, And he's a legendary terraformer and knows everything about uh, terraforming, which just means um, how to adjust the landscape of a planet, You know, uh, kind of artificially adjusting what a landscape of a planet looks like. 
And so um, the problem is Severum doesn't know she exists. He doesn't know he has a daughter and she's like 19, 20 years old. And so basically there's a, a conflict there, between, you know, f- familial conflict uh, within the individual. And Severum doesn't know what is his role, what is his obligation or responsibility to a child who he, doesn't, he didn't know existed until a couple of days ago. On the other hand, she kind of holds him accountable for not being there for him. For her, yeah. um, even though he didn't have a chance to, you know, so it's um, and that seems irrational. But I think that a lot of our um, emotions are irrational and and whatnot. So and then, OK, if you see me looking down, it's because I'm scribbling notes. Sure. So. And it's not only what is his responsibility, Severin's responsibility to a child, but all of a sudden. This adult has, like, she's an adult, shows up in his life and says, I'm your child. Um, Yes. You got some accounting to do, you know, like accounting for, right? Yes. Oh, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah, okay. And Severum is kind of like this, um, you know, I've I've always, when I picture him, I always picture like Sylvester Stallone kind of, you know, he's kind of a more traditional, um, almost patriarchal guy. And he doesn't really agree to help her at first until... He sees something as she in the second chapter at the end of it, um, when she's walking away from him after an argument, uh, she sees that he's wearing she's wearing his jacket. Yeah. You know, his his old army jacket, you know, that his, that must have came from her mom or some or something that was laying around and that she's clung to it all those years. That's the only thing she really had to know his, her father by. And that's what changes his mind. Like, OK, you know, I also. That was cool. Like <laughs> when I read I was when I read that, I thought. This is a real nice touch. I really like that. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like really odd, like it wasn't like the, uh, I don't want to say obvious, but you know, you read, okay, locket or you need le- read bracelet. But when he sees that jacket on her and he sees the initials, that's yes, what yeah. I thought was, that was cool. Yeah. Exactly. And he said, and he's like, damn it, she's got her mother's eyes, you know? (laughs) And so he realizes, and even the way she, she smells, it's like, he biologically knows this is my daughter. This is part of me. You know, it's like an instinct almost. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just, I have to ask you this now, because I don't want to forget. And it just, it came to me while you were talking. What did you read growing up then? So I read a lot of um, 80s cyberpunk literature growing up, um, Neuro, um, Neuromancer and other works by William Gibson, uh, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. And, um, but I also read a lot of Victorian literature, and that was probably what I read more than anything. So I'm obsessed with 19th century literature. Mm-hmm. I love um, Tennyson and Wordsworth and Charles Dickens and um, a lot of the you know, great Victorian authors and poets. And oh. so that was probably at least three quarters of what I read. And yeah. then American Transcendentalist works by um, Hawthorne, Emerson, and Thoreau, and whatnot. R- yeah. Wow. Okay. So were these? I'm going off on such a tangent here. I'm just. I'm. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm fascinated. So were these just? For here, here's my ex- reason why I'm asking this, is because I've had some authors come on the podcast who have said to me, you know, uh they saw their dad reading Stephen King. And so then they mm-hmm. they picked up a Stephen King novel and started to read it. And they're yeah. just like, whoa, okay. So I was I was just wondering um whether this is actually this is very personal. This is really none of my business. <laughs> no, it's okay. Did you grow up 
in an environment where mm. Victorian literature was you'd see on your bookshelves. No, it was mostly Stephen King. Okay. And so I read I read about 25 of uh, Dean Koontz and Stephen King's books. Oh, wow. and so, you know, and then I, I got to, got into the other somehow on my own. Uh, Walden I had to study in school. Okay. Um and you know, it's such a rebellious text in so many ways. It rebels against the whole commodification uh, and consumerism that has, you know, enveloped our entire existence. You know, and we what exist book is this? Sorry. to consume. Uh Henry David Thoreau Walden. Okay. So in, an, in an, uh, about 1850, uh, Thoreau wrote a book about um, he, he was in Concord, Massachusetts, and he wrote a book about just leaving society and going to a large pond, a lake, and uh, building a small cabin and living very simply. Yeah. Um, bec- you know, in 1850, it seems like everybody was living simply compared to today. But there were still, you know, so many demands uh, society placed on people that he wanted to isolate himself and get away from the, all the consumerism. He built all of his furniture, um, and he was highly educated. And a whole network of people, uh, of intellectuals and artists, like um, grew up around him, uh, like Louisa May Alcott, uh, who wrote Little Women, uh, was part of that group. Um, and of course, Emerson Walt Whitman was part of that group, who wrote Leaves of Grass, and. Um, and Alcott's father, uh, Bronson Alcott, was very inspirational to that group as well. He, Bronson uh, opened the first school uh, in the United States, and it was a school of philosophy in Concord. Uh, but anyway, so there's a large intellectual history there. But it was also very rebellious because Thoreau was trying to rebel against um, the consumerism of his time. His teacher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, also rebelled. He was rebelling against basically the authority of the government as opposed to a a separate authority. So for Emerson, there's this uh, government authority that he revolts against in the name of human freedom. But for Emerson, the higher authority is God within the self, God actualizing itself through um, the individual and the individual's will, which he believes society suppressed that, that natural instinct we have towards goodness. Uh, by you know society, all the advertising we see, the average child sees 200 ads a, a day, you know, between the internet and going down the street and you know whatnot, and so you know that's become our reality. And, but there is a higher um, state of being that humans are capable of by actualizing this instinct, according to Emerson, this you know natural flow towards goodness, and so this became the American transcendentalist movement, okay. and that's what. That's what led me into more rebellious literature. Okay. Cool. Okay. That's fascinating. Okay. So, <laughs> but your book, I'm, I took us off this path. Yes. We're going to get back to your book. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now I'm wondering, so do you feel that we have seeds of, in your book, seeds of the conflict that you see in your book? I'm, I'm getting this wrong. The conflict like in reality. and reality in our current times. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I did my master's in sociology, Joanna. And okay. what we find, what, what we study is patterns of relationships between groups of people, the rich and the poor, blacks mm-hmm. and whites, and women and men, and all the different groups in society, all these superficial groups that we set up to, to divide us instead of uniting us. Yeah. You know, that there's always conflict. And it's an artificial conflict that, um, institutions create, and it's an artificial conflict, there's no reason that um, 
you know, there should be as much antagonism, like racial antagonism in our society as there is. There's simply no logical reason why that should be there. Um, and so in studying, yeah, th- those seeds of conflict, that most conflicts tend, tend to revolve around inequality. Mm-hmm. One person, you know, or one group has so much more money than another. That is just a tremendous uh, discrepancy. And for liberals, this is a problem. Conservatives don't consider this as much of a problem, perhaps. Uh, but for liberals, this is considered a social problem. Yeah. So there's no way that we define what is a problem and what is not a problem. And I understand that's based on, you know, how we're raised and whatnot. Um, but and then, you know, racism and sexism, this is where a lot of the conflict uh, is in society. So in in the book, in inertia, the conflict is regarding really our relationship to nature. Is nature yeah. something to be exploited, you know, like a buffet just to be exploited for our own personal gain? Or is it something to be, um, you know, to be, should we be stewards of nature, husbands of nature in a sense of protecting her? And, you know, that uh, different groups have a variety of different ideas on this. Um, I'm a vegetarian, for instance. I believe if I walk delicately on the earth, Joanna, that the earth will walk delicately on me. I would oh, hope. That's <laughs> such know? a nice way. That's a beautiful way of saying that. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it, that's the things that you know I like people to think about. Good, good. Okay. Now, so I like the idea, the whole idea of speeding up the planet's rotation because oh my god that 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 would just <laughs> just thinking some days that would just knock me off my feet but that's not what the like that's not there's more to it than that but i thought it was a really neat idea okay mm-hmm. so what was the nugget what was the idea what made you start going down this path of Okay, what if I do this, and how did it bring about this story? Yeah, um, like a lot of my greatest ideas, my wife came up with it. So, um, you know, my wife and kids have been very supportive through the process. And and so you have to have that family support, especially when you're starting out. Um, Starting out as an author, even if you're backed by a publisher like I am, is still like starting your own business. And you do everything that you would do as far as, you know, advertising, marketing, et cetera, that you would do if you own a business. And that's really hard because, you know, we write because we love the creative process. And, um, but 90% of what I do is more the business side of, of it. And so, you know, having that family support is important to keep you going through this. Okay. And we'll talk more about um, family support. Yeah. And kind of like sure. the behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. And I'm not going to go, I'm not going to start there yet. Okay. Because <laughs> I just, I have this okay. thought came to me right now. Um, oh, great. Now, so our listeners know the connection between these first few questions. Can you give us an idea of what inertia is about? Sure, absolutely. So inertia um, essentially takes place on another planet, Lyce 581G. It's an actual planet. It's tidal locked um, to the sun. And um, basically, the rotation of this planet has been played with. Uh, the, the A tidal locked planet rotates, but it rotates in a way that uh, one side is always facing um, at the sun, essentially. And so one side of the planet's always dark, and one side of the planet's always light. In this case, the planet's been rotated enough that there's uh, da- some daylight cycles now. And in fact, those daylight those daylight cycles have gotten out of control, and the sun is rising numerous times during the day. Oh, wow. And there's environmental destruction. Yeah. And uh, because of it, 
uh, the, the Coriolis effect is taking hold and causing hurricanes and, and various storms. And because before the uh, a tidal lock planet would not normally have a Coriolis effect, this kind of goes into the science a little bit. Um, but uh, and some people are more interested in the science of science fiction, and some people are more interested in the characters. And yeah. you try to blend together just enough of the science to capture both crowds, yeah. but try to have some characters and emotion in there too. And that's a difficult balance, um, I think, especially in sci-fi. Um, and because inevitably I read books where they get all the science right and the book's boring as can be and there's no emotions to the character. Yeah. And then I read science fiction where the characters are just great, the dialogue's incredible, but there's no real science to it, you know. So it's a and I think that's somewhat because of the personality types that graduate towards the scientific fields um are not always the most um the most perhaps socially adept. Um, personality types that might be, that may that might write a uh, certain dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, so that's perhaps a little controversial, but um, in, in any regard, so there's a, a lot of science in the book, but in the book, um, Ash and Severum have to uh, explore uh, what what is this connection between the government, this corporation, and um, and the global warming and the rotation of the planet, and put all the pieces together to this puzzle. And so the uh, eventually, they find a um, a, a group uh, called the Basra, and these are almost sentient crystals, sentient light crystals, and they exist in a, a luminous network that permeates the planet. And this network is almost like an internet, but it's almost like a an organic internet. Um, it's almost like an internet um, that is not something you can tap into, but something that these creatures. Um, you know, you know, connect to uh, within themselves by sharing light that reflects off the off of their crystal prisms, and so there's a whole light communication network, and then there's the whole um, a plot where certain individuals say, well, if there is this, if Earth, if the planet itself has a light communication network among its rocks, and this is like an internet, could you actually, you know, digitally tap into it and exploit it for your own means? Yeah, and you know, at that point, it gets very um, abstract and then i kind of i kind of leave it at that point and then i'm working on the sec on, on another one in the, in the series here to kind of go farther into that idea cool but you definitely still have a story involving characters too like i i, I, yes. di I didn't find it and i mean this as a compliment i'm not a sci-fi reader but i did not find it heavy, 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 heavy science. Okay. I was, yes. you had me invested and, and you're going to, and people are going to tell by some of the questions I've, I've, I've will be, I'll be asking. Um, okay. So now the lighter question, mm -hmm. you thank your wife for support and editing your son Hans designing the book cover. And I, I like this humorous relief and I don't think I've ever brought this up in a podcast, but yes. it's that importance of the family support in the writing process. What, 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 what do you, what do you think? You know, um, my first novel took about 4,500 hours to write over the course of, you know, decade, a couple of decades. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the second one, you know, the third one were a lot easier. They took three to 400 hours, but yeah. that's three to 400 hours that you're not doing chores in the house that you're not, you know, investing in your children's education, that you're not doing this and that. And there is always a conflict there where 
I immediately feel a sense of selfishness and almost yeah. guilt when I sit down and take that time to myself uh, to enter this immersive world that when I write, that's all that exists. Yeah. You know, the, the kids could be screaming and that's all that exists is that page at that moment in my, because if you don't immerse and ground yourself into that page, you can't make it realistic for the reader, yeah. you know, um, but you can become very shut off. I could write 10 hours straight if I, if I didn't stop myself, you know, you can. And so that isolationism combined with a very introverted personality type, um, you know, it, you have to have family support uh, during those periods. Um, so. And part of that is taking is setting time aside for yourself, but setting aside time for the family. And so I'm, you, you said, okay, I'll write a half hour a day for these three weeks, and I'll take a week off and not write at all. Mm-hmm. And so you set reasonable guidelines for yourself. Uh, most authors I know, even those who are professionally published by the big publishers, are still doing things like going to college and and they have full time jobs, or they're working as college professors, or you know they're still running their normal lives. Authors today. The idea that an author today would have a career where they can just write 40 hours straight a week yeah. is is not really there yeah. uh, because Amazon has 400,000 books every year that are published on it in the United States alone. Oh, wow. So wow. the competition there, yeah. um, you know, it, it makes it so that an author really can't make a living by writing too well anymore. Um, in addition, uh, those three publishing houses, uh, Random House, Penguin, et cetera, uh, own about 90% of the market. And then this is uh, further, um, the further problem is that artificial intelligence now is being used to write books. And it is flooding the market with so many novels that the artificial intelligence writes, they can write 100 novels in three seconds. And, you know, some of them just by the, just because they're writing so much are pretty good. And you're competing against all of those as well. Uh, big sci-fi magazine, Clark's World, perhaps the largest, just had to cancel submissions. Because they've received so many submissions from AI, in lots of cases, the AI is writing better work than the authors are, oh, wow. and they don't know how, they don't even know how to handle the artificial intelligence submissions. So they just stopped their submission process entirely, and they've been running for thirty five years. Um, and so, yeah, it's a new world we're living in, and the it's so competitive in the marketplace. And so basically, an author has to juggle that time with their family, yeah. that time dedicated to the, to being an author. But they're they're going to have to work, you know, a, a job and go to college and still do everything else. And there's not much time in the day. Yeah, yeah. So family nah. support it has to be there. Yeah, and I I hear you. Um, just I know how much time I dedicate to writing, and uh, you know, it was just a conversation I had with my my husband, and he doesn't read my books which I have absolutely no problem with, okay? Mm. I'll talk to him about an idea <clears throat> I may have with my book, or I may say to him, I'll I'll throw a bounce, I'm, my voice is, I'm losing my voice today. I may bounce an idea off him or go, what if, you know, um, if it has to do with cars or anything. He listens when I talk about books or podcasts or what I'm doing. And for example, one night we were having dinner and you know he's he's with a new um a new uh like he works for a grocery store and a new grocery store has bought out the company okay so he works for this new mm-hmm. company and uh i had mentioned to him i just i said so anyone asks what your wife does 
your wife's an author, right? And I just I said it just like this as we're right. you know as we're you know cutting a roast or whatever, right? And then he looked at me and, and he goes, "Yes, you write a series, but in each series, the books are standalone books." And I looked and I went, "Way to go!" Right? Like he like I thought yeah he he knew. You know, he he knew, he knew, like, I just thought, okay, you know, like, he, you are paying attention, you know, and sometimes I know I have to compete with Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers and the hockey and Stanley Cup, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Right? But I just thought, absolutely, you. yeah, thank you, you know, okay. Absolutely. Well, it's important to pass that first draft on to someone, you know, especially. And so some people need like writer's groups and all, you know, because if somebody doesn't read your first draft, in my case, my brother reads mine, uh, then you have no idea how they're going to take things. Because if if the details of a book don't quite add up or make sense, the reader will fill in the gaps to make it make sense. And they'll fill them in in ways that you wouldn't even imagine, you know, so. And it's, that's what I find with, um, you know, you like exactly. You may have one idea in mind when when you put down a certain sentence, and then I know my editor will read it and she'll say, "Do you mean this or do you mean that?" And then it tweaks that. Wow, this sentence could be taken a few different oh, yeah. ways, right? Yeah. My friend, my friend Jim Keen, for instance, is a uh, sci-fi writer who went to number one recently on Amazon, and uh, Jim, in, in an initial version of his book, uh, he he wrote this phrase. Um, he uh she went through the um tu- through the train tunnel and it was and and entered a new world and uh, um and so what he meant by that when she went through the train tunnel and entered a new world what he meant to, well, uh this was a world of homeless people that he described and there were um train hobos and that and that this woman was from a rich environment and she had no idea um the kind of world she was entering uh because it was like a different part of uh, walk of life right uh, but the way I took it was, since it's science fiction, I thought the whole train tunnel was a portal and she was in another world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I took it literally. So you never know. In, some, in science fiction, it could be literal, it could be metaphorical. You, you don't know how they're going to take it. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So that's why beta reading is important. Yeah. Okay, now the setting of your novel. Uh, sci-fi and fantasy authors. I'm envious of the maps you have in the beginning of your novels. Yes. And one of my books is going to have a map, okay? Because the map yes. in front of your novel is so cool. So can you tell me about that, the map making process? Absolutely. Um, first, why set it in a different world? Uh, that allow, uh, Setting in a different world, A, um, allows me to avoid the controversy of global warming that's become a political issue in the United yeah. States. And B, it allows um, you to have a sense of escapism. People come to sci-fi because they want to escape to a new world. Um, you know, they that doesn't look anything like the world they had that they have. Um, at least on the surface, it doesn't. And so, um, the map making process, I use um, uh, a program to basically uh, put together a map of the book. Ever since everybody wants a map in their book, because we all read um, Tolkien's work, like The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings, and that was the first time I ever saw a map. And so, at that point, I'm like, wow. Maybe one day I could I could write a book and have a map like that, you know, because yeah, yeah. he's got. And initially, I started um, uh, writing without a map, and then the map came after the fact, and I realized that wasn't really the way to do it. I needed to create the map first, and yeah. so now I create the maps first, and then I write, and this orients the readers a lot better to do it in that order. Yeah. Um, see, 
in my early work, people felt somewhat disoriented as to the relationship of the locations um, because I didn't create the map first in my own head. Now, by creating the map first for inertia and writing it down, I could say, well, this place is 10 miles away and it's to the northeast of this city and it's in the desert and it's and all those details are consistent and correct. So the map keeps the author, um, you know, straight with the details, but but it also keeps the reader straight. And so um, I designed a map and and basically you don't want to add every single detail on there, but you do want to add, you know, some of the main things. And then there's there's a link to my website and on the website, there's the color version of the map. And if you click a city, then you get a little like paragraph blurb about it. Sweet. Sweet. I love that. I love that. Okay. Now, I think still on this on the on our setting setting kind of area here. I've worked in an office for 33 years. Wow. And uh yeah, I'm recently retired and I'm just oh, great. Yeah, I'm 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 working on 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 my my writing and my my books okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and but having worked in an office the workstations in your novel i think mm-hmm. they're really cool okay um <laughs> so our audience knows the listeners know they're teardrop shaped glass workstations that hang from below skywalks and it's to maximize workspace. Mm-hmm. I think this is so cool. I <laughs> I really do. So, and I'm not going to say what ends up happening to those workstations. So, um, how did you come up with that idea? I was looking at um, some paintings of the future, and in a lot of cases, um, they have uh, basically like in the future, everything's depicted as huge, like skyscrapers. And so I asked myself, well, how could um, you know there? How could they maximize space? And I know that the corporations are going to maximize space. Uh, regardless of whether it meets, you know, OSHA standards or any kind of regulation or standard, they're just going, you know, they tend to put the profit first and the safety of the people second. And so, um, and so here was a space skywalks between skyscrapers that they could utilize um, that, you know, by hanging, hanging the offices from the, from the skywalks, uh, it was, you know, extra space they they could utilize. And it's extremely dangerous for the employees as we turn out. But um, you know, there's no regard for that because they're they're connecting the employees 12 hours a day, yeah. um, and they basically hook you up to like an IV unit when you sit down in your work chair. And at that point, I'm almost going into what into what's called satire, yeah. where you know it's an exaggeration, a satire of the modern work condition, where you know people are working in say call centers and they're working 12 hour shifts and they're getting you know little seven minute breaks to to run to the bathroom and they don't really have a whole lot of time uh, to live in their life. They work all week, and a lot of people still can't make their bills after working all week. And um, and so this is what I was thinking. And so because of this, they're teardrop-shaped, which is almost like the lam- the lamentation of the modern worker, um, You know, where the worker, you know, it's like a symbolic of the fact that they lament the fact that they even have to be there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, we've been hinting at your characters. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about Ash? Yes. So um, Ash is a, a young woman who's uh, a geologist and studies geoforming. And 
Um, she is very uncertain of her place in the world. She's uncertain in her place with her family. Her mother and her have conflicts, typical uh, conflicts that somebody would have. Um, like you can't wear, wear that when you go out. You can't go to this club. You shouldn't be hanging out with these people. You know, her mother's very, uh, Akasha is very judgmental towards her. And um, so they have a strained relationship, but also one that grows in closeness over time as they reconcile the relationship with her dad. And so um, she ends up in one in one uh, scenario actually saving both her parents' lives uh, because she is a computer hacker. And I love the idea of the child saving the parents instead of the other way around. Yeah. You know, it shows that you know it's the it's the young generation which is going to have to make a lot of the changes that I would like to see in society towards promoting human rights and freedoms. You know, um, at some point, I think in another twenty years, I'm forty two, but in another twenty years, I may look back and say. Okay, I've done about what I can do at this point. The younger generation has to take over responsibility. Yeah. And so the, the child saves the parents. And um, but yeah, she's a master computer hacker. So a lot of her scenes occur in a sort of a virtual reality. Um, everybody's always looking at the world through through their eyes, which are almost like computer screens in themselves. And yeah. so they're always getting a ton of data feed flooding into them in the world. Um, but yeah, um, a lot of her scenes occur in like hacking in VR. Yeah. Okay. Now you write, I would like to read this paragraph because I thought it was actually, it was, it was, it's beautiful. Sure. Okay. Um, here, I'm just going to say, it. I'm not even going to give any lead up to it. Fog swelled in the streets outside. Ash had been told it was a low lying cloud, but she knew better. It was the misty wings of her guardian angel too laden with the ashes of past battles to tread upon the heavens any longer. <sighs> that paragraph, for me as a reader, when I read two sentences, like it's, it's two sentences like that, and if it, and it makes me kind of, it makes me go, oh, you know, <laughs> that's... I think the best reading experience a reader can have. Okay. And now from now on, you know, I live on, Van the, on Vancouver Island on the West coast, we get fog, you know, in more in the wintry sure. months when fog sure. comes in, I'm going to be looking at fog from now on thinking they're the fatigued guardian angels. And like, right. thank, thank you for that. I, I love that. Right. And also, it makes sense because uh, the guardian angels have a tough job. Okay, so, sure, sure. Uh, um, how just how did that come together? Because it it is such a beautiful image. How did that come together? You know, uh, I in my in some of my work, it was too metaphorical. I found, and um, a lot of some people just don't like a lot of metaphor in sci-fi. But that's that 19th century poetry that I was reading. You know, okay. growing up. And that, you know, having a few lines that are poetic like that you know, are important. And it's not just a meaningless um, romanticizing of nature because it's through Ash's perspective. And for her, she is romanticizing nature. She is looking for protection, you know, in a father figure. She's looking for a guardian. And so, you know, this is how she's, she's you know, examining. Uh, this is how she's reflecting on that before she meets her dad is, you know, she's reflecting on the concept of protection and guardianship. And that, you know, infuses with her perception of the natural world. Yeah. So. I love it. Like I said, Thank every you. time. I really appreciate that. Well, every time fog comes in, because it 
it comes off the water. And I'm going to think, I'll be thinking about that. Yeah, they're a little tired today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So now tell our listeners about Severin. He is Ash's dad, right? Yes. So Severin is um, a former military um, guy. And he became very disenchanted with the military over time um, because, because eventually, originally he was kind of hired um, to hunt some of the poor people down who were they owed money to the government and whatnot, and they were basically being hunted, you know, almost like a debt collector. And eventually, eventually he kind of, um, as he interacted with those people more, he realized that they're just like everybody else. They just, they had just fallen down on their luck in life, and he became more compassionate towards them. And so he uh, became skeptical. Of the of um, the military in these reg- in this regard, um, because of the things that they were ordering him to do, and so he's really um, his personality is split between somebody who has a very traditional uh, patriarchal upbringing, where he has to be the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, that figure, he, and it's split between that and ha- and having to evolve his personality in some way that makes him more socially acceptable to others. Yeah. So one phrase said that he never listened to his wife's feelings more than it took for her to put out that night if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. And so and so that was, you know, there was no emotional connection there with his wife, with his ex-wife. Um and eventually he realizes that this this isn't you know the way you live life. Life is about people, and life is about communication more than anything. And it's something that's difficult, and it may be particularly difficult for men because it's not communication isn't something that we're that's enforced in us the same way. I don't think yeah. um, it's it's not something that there's a social expectation that that men just kind of make decisions independently. This is the way things are. This is the way it's going to be. And but by cutting off the dialogue and cutting off communication like that, um, you know, everybody's voices isn't heard and and society just isn't very enriched by that. You know, we we are enriched by the communications and the openness of conversation we can have. Yeah. Well, I watched the Academy Awards on Sunday and I think it was the best Academy Awards ever. And. Some of the the directors of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh, that's a great movie. Oh, I so enjoy that movie. I really Oh, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And it just, it was so touching to see the, the Daniel brothers, they call them the Daniel brothers, in their acceptance speech, being mm. so humble. And just mm-hmm. it, it was so refreshing to see. And it, it made me think of the communication because they were they were they were speaking definitely. I felt they were speaking from their heart, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. okay. So I'm working on an alternate history time travel novel. Okay. Wow. Now, now here you go. <laughs> I my background has always been mystery thrillers. Okay. I, I think mm-hmm. I've read every Dick Francis novel. And my mentor through the writing school at mm-hmm. Simon Fraser University, we were talking about a submission I had submitted in class. Mm-hmm. And she, she had said to me, she goes, okay, Joanna, with your character, you have an open canvas here. Okay. Now, this is a totally different character from what I've been used to writing about. 
and I'm out walking those dogs and I'm thinking, okay, this character, what is she to you? Okay. What is this, this character to you? And it, for me, it was, you know, I'm thinking, okay, maybe she does this, she does this, she does this. What would happen to this character that you could really connect with on a gut level? Okay. Mm, and it yes. came to me and it had to do with losing a dog. Okay. And huh. once I got that, I thought, okay, it was almost like now I have like the nugget of who this character is. I can work on this person. I can work on this character. Like I've got a connection. Right. Sure. Absolutely. So thinking about Ash and Severin. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, you, uh, you as an author, you're writing three, let's say 300 pages to your novel involving mm -hmm. these characters. Do you believe you, the writer has to have that connection to that character in order for the reader to have that connection also to that character? Or how do you build that connection? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, when we dream, we dream our, uh, of all different sorts of things. And, and all the characters in our dream are really us when we dream, yeah. you know, the, you know, they're, uh, you know, they may be, they may look like other people, but there are our unconscious mind that's generating everything. Likewise, in literature, uh, when we create characters, really, they're all a part of us. They may be our shadow self, as Carl Jung said, that repressed part of ourself that we that's not socially acceptable that we don't show anybody, yeah. you know. But um, they do represent a part of 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 who we are, you know. Our personalities are kind of like a Rubik's cube, and you know they've got all these different sides, and we choose which side we show people in different circumstances, and um, and to some degree, there's a lack of authenticity, perhaps, in that. Um, you know, and we should, you know, strive towards honesty, of course, um, in how we present ourselves. Uh, people often present their strengths and not their weaknesses as much. On social media, this is completely evident where people choose, you know, what is the most idealistic part of my life that I'm going to put forth to others? You know, and they put, you know, in my ideal world, people would take a screenshot of them kayaking at the beach. And it would be followed by a screenshot of them arguing, uh, screaming, at, sc screaming at each other. You know, it would be it would be realistic. It would be here, here's a realistic portrayal of what yeah. the human condition is. Yeah. You know, um, the wife falls your... out of the kayak. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I forgot your original question to be. No, it was. I got it sidetracked. Was, yeah, no, it's the connection, like that. The you got, yes. you have yes. to find that connection with that character. Oh, to the character. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Right, and. It, and that looks means looking into those parts of yourself that you often repress. Yeah. Um, and you may saw lots of people do this unconsciously, of course. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, when you say shadow self, I'm thinking about one of the bad guys in uh, in my but the book I'm I'm writing on, doing rewrites on, and she is evil. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> Joe, there's a you're letting out your evil shadow self here because she is evil. Okay. <laughs> So, so thinking of Ash and thinking of Severin, I think you have two storylines, okay? I think you have mm -hmm. their relationship, and then you have the science fiction and what's going on in your world, in that world. Sure. Did one storyline come to you before the other, or did they just, they, they just came to, did it, they just both come together? Um. 
Let's see. I mean, the the overall story, science fiction story, came before uh, the characters. I didn't even know who the fir- you know who the characters would be. You know, essentially at first, and, you know, I, I had no concept of um, who would be featured in it because oftentimes uh, I've written and I'll have maybe six different characters' perspectives in a book, and mm-hmm. it's hard. That's hard for the reader to keep track of. If you have more than three or four different characters that you're taking their perspective on things, uh, readers have a hard time to keep track. And in addition. Um, you, you, if you have, say, six characters and you're viewing the world through everyone's eyes, then you're not really as able to get as intimate of a connection with any given character because there's not enough page space. So because of that, I said, well, I have to you know, just have two characters. There'll be other characters in the book, but only two to focus on. And so, yeah, I limited uh, to them two. And I was in the structure one character, then the ne- and then the next chapter is the next character going back and forth was based on uh, how Dean Kuntz handles it. Dean Kuntz often has um, two characters and every other chapter is devoted to one character. And that was always cool with Kuntz because there'd always be one character that I loved more than the other. Yeah. But, it, but you know, if I read a chapter, I realized that, well, I, I might not like this other character as much, but in another chapter, if I finish this, I can get back to the character I like. Yeah. So, okay, you've got me thinking now. Did you say setting kind of came first before the characters? Oh, yes. Yeah. Set, okay. Setting. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because now with this time travel alternate universe I'm working on, it is setting that that hit me first. Like we moved oh, to this wow. new area and we're walking right. along the beach. And, you know, my husband pointed out this massive rock. And as I was looking at it, I thought it almost looks like an elephant. And then we oh, walked... Cool. It it just it was just how the rock formed, and then when we walked yeah. around to the front, I thought, "There's the portal. Like there's where they they go, you know, to the different times." So I'm, I'm okay. I just that's I wonder. I wonder. Okay. Yeah. Historic historic fiction and alternate time tra- travel fiction. I read a um a book by Joe Hirsch and Sherman regard uh, with this, where uh, Native Americans go back in time uh, to basically empower Native Americans during the uh, Civil War yeah. um, so that they can have more political power as time goes on. And yeah, just that that, that time travel uh, alternate reality fiction is so cool because where else can you have a conversation with like Thomas Jefferson, yeah. you know, and, and it, you know, so seeing stuff like that in that genre is really neat. Oh, cool. Okay. What advice would you give to a new science fiction writer or someone like me whose next novel is like in an alternate universe or they're writing from a, in a completely different genre from what they're used to. Ah, and so um, you know, one of the things regarding this is the world building is so complex, and you know how much um, you know. So first of all, again, again, joining a writers group and being part of a group that can review your world that you've built for consistency is important. Um, second. Um, understanding the factions and cultures of your world. You know, start by studying the culture of the world we live in. You know, our clothes, our language, um, the, how some groups articulate words, the different words of different, um, uh, you know, groups of people. Um, like in the mountain talk of the Appalachian uh, people is not the same as, say, the Southern dialect versus where I grew up in Maryland. Yeah. Um, and so um, dialects and, you know, and, 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 and the cultural elements of, say, religion, you know, what deities are worshipped, does that cause conflict in the society? And, um, you know, what is the role of technology in society? Societies really have five problems that they have to solve. How do we produce things? How do we regulate people's behavior? How do we distribute resources to people? How do we um, 
reproduce the culture and teach the new generation what our what our values are. Yeah. And how do we um, handle population conflict uh, where there's the, regarding, say, immigration, gentrification, uh, migration and things like that? And so that's that's uh, based on like Spencer, a late 19th century sociologist. And so that's kind of the framework I use, production, regulation, distribution, whatever else I just said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, on my website, markeverglade.com, there is a um, section of articles and there's 100 author resources. And about you know a dozen of them are really good um, places where on uh, world building, for world building. And so there's some sites that just have amazing uh world building advice on how to go about like, you know, everything. I can put the link in the chat if you like. Yeah, I I will actually include your website in the show notes too. Cool. And on that page, there's one by say Dan Cobalt and some others. Um, and those some of those pages have like 50 links to world building um, things. So there's a section of world building um, on there for, uh, for writers resources that I recommend. Most of the resources on that page, 90, 95% of them are free. For authors, you know, it's not something that's designed to sell people things. So. That is cool. I'm looking at the, all the, the articles now. Thank you. That is sure, cool. Sure. Oh, yeah, writers... Cyberpunk slang. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Okay. So two very, very light questions here. First of all, uh, for now, no, now that you've mentioned AI and writing novels, I am going to do my hardest to make sure that any novel I write, I, I buy. I want to see a human. <laughs> I want to see a human. Absolutely. I want to see a human picture attached to that name writing that novel. Okay. But that's that's the problem, Joanna, <laughs> is that there's a website called This Person Does Not Exist. Oh. And it creates realist it creates extremely realistic photographs of people that do not exist. Uh, and nothing in Amazon's policy requires that they identify that it's an artificial intelligence that wrote it. So they can come up, so they use the website, they create a picture and they create a name. And there's nothing that requires them to identify as an AI. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm glad. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm really glad I have a podcast because if I'm going to yeah. interview someone about a book, they better <laughs> be a human <laughs> on the other end yeah. of that screen. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. So, again, another another extremely light light question. You, I have a headshot of you, and you're holding an electric guitar. Oh yeah. Talk to me about that. So do you, do you play, obviously you play electric guitar. What, what, sure. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Sure. I love um, progressive uh, rock of the seventies, uh, <laughs> classic prog rock. You know, so I love Yes, King Crimson, Jethro Tull, and all the Canterbury bands and uh, whatnot. And um, one of my favorite bands is Rush, which is why I named my first band. <laughs> uh, they're Canadian. <laughs> it's, uh, exactly. Yeah, they're of course Canadian, and so that's why I named my first novel um, "Hemispheres" after their album. And so, uh, yeah, and that music, you know, really inspires. You know, as I'm listening to lyrics by like you know Dream Theater, Rush, King Crimson, these bands, their lyrics are so abstract and poetic that um, you know they really inspire me to write, and they really inspired me to. Uh, enjoy poetry more and whatnot because of the poetry and the lyrics. And so, yeah, I've been playing for 25 years. I also love uh, 60s uh, cool jazz and um, and, some, and a variety of other genres. Really, every genre fits a style 
a certain mood yeah. you know when i'm when i'm kayaking later this week um here in florida i'll be listening to probably bossa nova because that creates a certain light you know the brazilian jazz creates a light mood when i'm writing you know i i try to match the music to the type of scene or emotion i want to convey and when you can do that then you know for me it's a very immersive thing yeah i i've, I, I've done that yeah um oh, yeah. just i have on my phone uh Alison Chains, okay, wrote this very heavy, I think it's even called Rooster. Yes, it song. is. It is. Oh, yep. and the <laughs> guitar that starts on that. And it's, I know whenever I'm doing like a fight scene or a lead yeah. up to a fight scene, that song is playing. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, when I'm, I'm, let's say, coming up with questions for podcasts or if I am writing, you know, I'm, I'm doing my own writing. It's usually instrumental jazz that'll have mm. in the background, you know, just absolutely. It's there and it's not yeah. too quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Mark, awesome. this, this has been excellent. This is Thank so you. cool. It's Thank been you a pleasure. so much. So anything you'd like to add that I haven't covered, we'll make sure we get this, your website link and the writer resources all of that will be in the show notes but anything you'd like to add no i think that's it i really appreciate the opportunity joanna it's been an absolute pleasure thank you oh good okay mark have a good have a good afternoon you too